A few years ago, I was driving to my presbytery with our church assistant, and we were chatting, and he said to me, what CDs do you have in your car changer? And I thought, and I said, well, I've got Rachmaninoff's first. Um, I have a Hebrew grammar, as you do. (laughs) I had uh, James Taylor, Sweet Baby James. I had Joni Mitchell's Greatest Hits and The Best of Blondie. (laughs) Well, when he heard The Best of Blondie, he looked at me and he said, you're a trustee at the Banner of Truth. (laughs) It, It doesn't quite go with your image. Well, I think perhaps when I'm finished this afternoon, you might be wanting to contact Ian Murray, but we'll see. The subject of this conference, I think, is is timely and it's necessary. Timely because I cannot think I've ever attended a conference where every address related to the vexed issue of principle and pragmatism. And necessary because too often, at least to myself, principle and pragmatism are presented as principial and ecclesiological opposites, when in fact they are often principial and ecclesiological companions. The Christian Church and the Reformed expression of the Christian Church is no exception to this, has been bedeviled throughout its history by men for whom there are no shades of theological grey. Now, what follows is a brief, uh, briefish preamble, a more substantive centre, and then a number of concluding observations. To such men for whom there are no shades of theological grey, Paul, if they didn't know it was Paul, would be classed as a compromiser. Didn't he, as we heard earlier, under pressure, circumcise Timothy? Didn't he cave into pressure and fall back into Jewish practices that the gospel had fulfilled and left behind? Acts 21. Is Paul not something of an embarrassment for reformed Christians who pride themselves on sola scriptura and the regulative principle that is people like me? Now, as we all know, and as Alistair explained to us so helpfully in the previous session, Paul explains his rationale in 1 Corinthians 9. His language and his argument are breathtaking. And if we don't think it's breathtaking, and if you can read those verses and live and minister comfortably in the light of them, you've not begun to understand them. (coughs) Paul is deeply unsettling, as the Bible is as a whole, of course. But for the theme of this conference, Paul's example and rationale helpfully, if unsettlingly, confronts us with what I want to call the Christian virtue of principled pragmatism. Now this principled pragmatism was, for example, a deliberately cultivated feature of John Calvin's pursuit of reformed orthodoxy and reformed collegial ecclesiology. In the face of his conflicts with Rome, Calvin exhibited, as we all know, 
a strong desire for church unity, a desire that I think would be considered bizarre by many self-styled Reformed Christians today. But Calvin's desire for unity was the result of his acute sense of the Catholicity of the church. This is particularly evident, as again I'm sure we all know, as he introduces Book 4 of the Institute, which has the title, The True Church, with which, as mother of all the godly, we must keep unity. And Calvin writes, It is not sufficient indeed for us to comprehend in mind and thought the multitude of the elect, unless we consider the unity of the church as that into which we are convinced we have been truly engrafted. For no hope of future inheritance remains to us unless we have been united with all other members under Christ our head. The church is called Catholic or universal because there could not be two or three churches unless Christ be torn asunder, which cannot happen. Now, to the modern Reformed Christian, and I'm assuming, and I'm only going to be on Calvin for about two minutes, but I'm assuming you'll understand or know something of the historical and theological context of these next words. To the modern Reformed Christian, Calvin appears almost vacillating in his willingness to trade off what he believed were biblical convictions to pursue visible church unity. How could he? How dare he? Well, he could and he dared because unlike many, and I almost want to say most self-styled reformed Christians, he believed passionately in living out our Saviour's high priestly prayer in John 17. He wrote to Heinrich Bullinger, What ought we rather, dear Bullinger, to correspond about at this time than the preserving and confirming by every possible means in our power brotherly kindness among ourselves? We must needs also endeavour by all means we can that the churches to which we faithfully minister the word of the Lord may agree among themselves. Speaking of those who differed with him on the vexed question of the Lord's Supper, which occupied such a central, paramount and vexatious place in the history of the Reformation, Calvin wrote, Were there any hope of mollifying these men, I would not refuse to humble myself and by supplicating them purchase the peace of the church. Now this was no idle promise that Calvin made. In the consensus Tigerinus, his sacramental rapprochement with Heinrich Bullinger, Calvin conceded a cherished biblical conviction, sacramenta conferunt gratiam, that the sacraments actually confer grace in order to secure, as he hoped, vainly as it turned out, a greater measure of Protestant unity. For Calvin, 
the pursuit of the Protestant church's visible unity trumped his own biblical convictions regarding the nature and character of the sacraments. Now, there were those at the time who thought Calvin was willing to concede too much for the sake of Protestant church unity, and they may well have been right. My point is not that Calvin was right to do this, but that as a deeply principled Christian man and theologian, and who would question that, he was willing to embrace principled pragmatism for the realization of a greater good. We see that mindset in the very famous response Calvin makes to the English exiles in Frankfurt who write to him and they are complaining that they're having to kneel to receive the Holy Supper. And and Calvin writes back and saying, yes, this is not required of Scripture, but bear, he said, bear with tolerable foolishnesses. And when John Knox wrote to Calvin, complaining that uh, Parliament was giving part of the patrimony of the Kirk to some of these ancient Roman priests who still lingered. Calvin replied again and said, yes, this isn't right, but they'll die. (laughs) They'll die. What follows is a very personal reflection on recent Reformed church history in particular as it relates to the Church of Scotland. I was a minister in the Church of Scotland for 20 years minus one month before I accepted a call to minister in Cambridge Presbyterian Church in the summer of 1999. I was called to CPC. I did not and never have seceded from the Church of Scotland. In the last few years, a small number of congregations, and they are a relatively small number, have seceded from the Church of Scotland, as probably all of you know. They've done so in good conscience, and, it is argued, were biblically constrained to do so. And the arguments put forward are, in the main, cogent and eminently biblical. Practicing homosexuality, among ministers of the gospel is a sin. It's offensive to God. It's a public disgrace to his church. Must be condemned and separated from. Who would deny it? Certainly, I hope, no biblically taught Christian. However, no less biblically taught Westminster Confession committed and conscience-constrained Christians have chosen not to secede from the Church of Scotland. My own congregation for 20 years in New Mills is now a congregation of the Free Church of Scotland. The minister and all the elders left. Half of the congregation didn't. And amongst the half who didn't were many of the finest, most mature and spiritual people in the congregation. Those men, thinking of ministers in particular, who have chosen not to secede, are they men who simply have been seduced by the spirit of the age? That's possible. The Church of Scotland has this remarkable way of transmuting people 
by its own Machiavellian ways into its own image over a period of time? Do they not think that practicing homosexuality is contrary to God's holy word? Are they men who have been so infected by the liberal agenda in the Church of Scotland for the last 150 years and more that this monumental moral issue is not the sin the Bible says it is? Have they become mere pragmatists who have abandoned principle for an easy life, a safe life, a pension provided life? Take a step back with me to the year 19. 89, which, in my judgment, was an annus horribilis for the evangelical cause in the Church of Scotland. That's just my opinion. The Creef Fellowship. Now, let me. How many of you know anything about the Creef Fellowship? Right, very, very few. The Creef Fellowship. William Still was probably the most influential minister in the Church of Scotland after the Second World War. He ministered in Gilcomston South Church in Aberdeen for 52 years. He died in 1997. Under his ministry, men like Eric Alexander, James Philip, George Philip came to faith. Sinclair Ferguson was nurtured under his ministry. Many men were sent into the ministry, sent out into the mission field. He was at the, the very heart of the recovery of expository, uh, reformed, uh, experiential preaching in the life of the Church of Scotland. In the early 1970s, he started what was called the Creef Brotherhood, to which he personally, it was a personal invitation, he would personally invite men whom he heard were committed to the systematic expository exposition of God's Word. I started going, 1974, still a theological student at Edinburgh. It grew and it grew. The stated aim was the recovery, meaningful recovery of the Westminster Confession of Faith as a subordinate standard of the Church of Scotland. In 1989, the Creek Fellowship met to discuss the thorny question of women's ordination, which had been for some years the stated law of the Church. I went into the Church of Scotland knowing that women's ordination was the law of the Church. I wasn't going to obey it. I wasn't going to conform to it, but I knew that's what the law of the church was. The vast majority of the men present, and they were all men, probably around 250, out of a total of probably 1,250 ministers in the Church of Scotland, 250, did not believe the scriptures taught, far less permitted women to be preachers, teachers, and exercise pastoral oversight in Christ's church. A conference was convened in order to decide how should the Creef Fellowship, how should evangelical men, and that word evangelical meant a lot more then than it does today. How are evangelical ministers to respond to the law of the church? What ought we to do if presbyteries press this issue upon us? Two papers were given. The first argued that the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland should stand together, refuse to ordain women to the office of elder, even when pressed, and be ejected rather than secede. The paper argued not for a disruption, but if necessary for a model 1662 ejection. The arguments proposed were rooted in exegesis, theology, church history and pastoral care. 
The second paper proposed that the evangelical should ordain women. Not because the Bible said so. Indeed, when the speaker began his address, he said he agreed with everything in the first paper. But the evangelical should ordain women because of the need for evangelical statesmanship. To have any influence, evangelicals needed to keep their pulpits, even if it meant conforming to the unbiblical law of the church. Serve the king of Babylon and live was a slogan of the time. Though no one seemed to pause and ask, and how did Daniel, for example, serve the king of Babylon and live? Now, if my recollection is accurate, the first paper was warmly received, its biblical arguments acknowledged. However, it was the second paper that won the day. Principled pragmatism prevailed. Pulpits were kept. Men ordained women initially holding their noses, but soon enough welcoming them with open arms. Women's ordination soon became the norm, with the exception of the islands and the highlands and a handful of churches in the lowland between Glasgow and Carlisle, a hundred miles. My congregation was the only one with no women elders. The ordination of women to the ministry soon became a non-issue for evangelicals. Now, what am I saying? My point is not that principal pragmatism prevailed over principled biblical teaching, although it did in my judgment. My point is, and this is what I want you to understand, good and faithful men with no ulterior motive than the good of Christ's church and the cause of the gospel differed over the way forward. The past 25 years in the Church of Scotland have been years of evangelical decline and reformed dismemberment. The once public aim of the Creef Fellowship to recover the Westminster Confession of Faith as a meaningful confession of the church quickly and quietly died to be replaced by, well, I'm not quite sure what, maybe just simply the desire to survive. You know, it's often said context is everything. Twenty, almost 25 years ago, I had a sabbatical in the USA and did some study at RTS in Jackson. And because I was pastoring a PCA church in the Mississippi Valley um, during that time, I was asked, would I mind sitting the PCA licensure ordination exams. I said, mind? I've only ever been asked my name in the Church of Scotland. So I had a whale of a time. The exams were not onerous, and so I really enjoyed preparing them. And I sat the exams, and that was fine. And I had my viva in the presbytery. And one of the questions was, amongst others, if a theonomist came to your presbytery, would you support his ordination? Well, I couldn't help but laugh. And they looked at me a little disconcerted, and I said, well, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I, I'm laughing for two reasons. Number one, I'm one of about three people in Scotland that's heard of theonomy. 
<laughs> and number two, if someone comes to my presbytery and believes in Jesus, I jump for joy. <laughs> You're worried about theonomists. I'm worried about deists and Arians and Patripassians and everything else. In the past 25 years, ministers have been ordained who openly denied the fundamental doctrines of the faith. But few said anything amongst the evangelicals. When men publicly denied the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the saving uniqueness of Christ, his penal atonement, to name but three cardinal biblical doctrines, very few raised their voices in protest. But three years ago, the homosexual issue came to the fore and voices were raised. It seems that it was tolerable for men to deny the Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, the miracles of Christ, his sin-bearing, sin-atoning, substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension into heaven, but woe unto him or her if they were practicing homosexuals. What is an evangelical in the Church of Scotland today? An anti-homosexual. Now, it's often said that in allowing ministers to be practicing homosexuals, the Church of Scotland was for the first time publicly departing from the clear teaching of God's word. I find that argument bewildering in the extreme. The first declaratory act, a little bit of history here. The Westminster Confession of Faith is still the subordinate standard of the Church of Scotland. But subscription is only to the substance of the faith contained within the confession of faith, which substance has never been defined. So you can believe anything and subscribe it. If you think the substance of the faith is simply Jesus was a good man who did good things, that's fine. The first declaratory act that introduced that concessive way of looking at the confession and of subscribing the confession was in 1879 in the life of the history of the church in Scotland. And that first declaratory act, which became in successive stages the, um, the way the generality of the Presbyterian churches in Scotland viewed the Westminster Standards, that declaratory act simply required men to subscribe an unwritten, undefined, not even ill-defined, but undefined substance of the faith. Subscription was no longer to the doctrine of the confession, not even to the system of doctrine in the confession, but to an undefined substance of the faith contained in the confession. But this declaratory act was initially conceived simply to give what John Cairns, the architect of the act, called here and there liberty, to a few men. There were men who scrupled some aspects of the confession's teaching, the main one being that there is no statement on the love of God explicitly mentioned, which is totally to misunderstand the whole confession of faith. But that's what they, there's, there's no chapter on God's love. And so to mollify these men and keep them within the church, this declaratory act was conceived. And it became a theological Pandora's box. Interestingly, 
the here and there liberty envisaged in 1879, for example, that there's not quite enough mention of the love of God in the confession, was blown out of the water because that same General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church that passed the Act refused to discipline one of its number who denied the doctrine of eternal punishment. But more to the point, the Pharisees were the biblical inerrantists of their day. And our Lord Jesus excoriated them for their grotesque unbelief. Why? Because God looks on the heart, not the words we confess with our lips. Didn't our Lord Jesus say it would be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for, uh, than for Capernaum? That covenant-blessed and covenant-privileged Capernaum would be worse off than Sodom on the day of judgment. Now, what I'm trying to say is this, that conservative evangelicals three years ago began to raise their voices But why then? Homosexuality is an easy target. It's an easy target. Now I know of course Luther is right. If you're not standing and fighting where the battle is fiercest, then you've abandoned the faith. That's absolutely true. But I'll tell you this. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the absolute heart and core and substance and foundation and glory of the Christian religion is to be fought for and defended unto death, not quietly, meekly, and calmly, and reflectively, and yet silently sitting in presbyteries while men and women deny it and are passed through their ordination trials. Now, in all of that, what is it I'm really trying to say? And this is maybe being a bit um, self-indulgent today, but I wanted to get this off my chest. So <laughs> I'm moving back to Scotland. I don't know who's going to have me when we move back. What am I trying to say? Simply this. There is at times in the life of the church a very fine dividing line between the exercise of principle and the pursuit of pragmatism. It's not always clear what the next step should be in the practice of living out gospel fidelity to God and faithfulness to his revealed word. The church is messy. The history of the church is messy. Some comments and reflections. Number one, God's infallible word is not by his sovereign good pleasure a systematic theology. Scripture is the unfolding history, the unfolding story of the history of redemption. Now certainly there are dogmatic propositions, but they are embedded in the messy flow of redemptive history. And it's a very messy flow. And we're often simply left in the good pleasure of God and in his wisdom to practice what the Westminster Confession calls good and necessary consequence and that's easier said than done there's no theology without psychology 
Secondly, good and godly men in the church have differed throughout the centuries as to the best and most God-honoring way to practice the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Whether it's the Donatist controversy of the 3rd century into the 4th, the sacramental controversies of the 16th, the vestment controversy of the 17th, the right of the 1843 disruption, or the moral controversy of the early 21st century, good and godly men have differed over the right and appropriate way ahead. We need but mention the names Stott, Packer, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Owen Chadwick, the eminent Oxford church historian, almost eulogised the sacrificial principled heroism of the 1843 disruption when 454 ministers left the Church of Scotland out of a total of 1,203, I think. 454 out of 1,203 to form the Church of Scotland free. And Owen Chadwick almost eulogises the sacrificial principle heroism of these 454 under the leadership of Thomas Chalmers. He wrote, The headship of Christ is that without which churches may be swept aside into heaps of rubble or converted into gymnasia. In all the span of Christian history, one can find no clearer demonstration of the sacred appeal to that headship in the realm of ecclesiastical polity than in the events of 1842 and 43, and in the leadership of Thomas Chalmers. Boy, that's saying something, Alistair. That's his tradition. But listen to what Chadwick also writes. Quietness and patience and persuasion are no less Christian virtues than is the heroic sacrifice of stipends on high principle. Now I wonder what you make of that. Quietness and patience and persuasion are no less Christian virtues than is the the heroic sacrifice of stipends on high principle. The issue of patronage, the imposition of ministers in parishes, almost at the whim of the the landed gentry who had um, oversight of the area, won't go into too much. Patronage was the instrumental issue that brought the disruption to its birth. Christ Jesus was king of his church, the headship of Christ. The crown rights of the Redeemer. We can't have patrons deciding who should be the pastor of a congregation. That's their own right. Patronage that brought the disruption to its birth was abolished less than 30 years after the disruption. Would it not have been better to wait? Possibly not. But possibly good men stayed in. Good men came out, some bad men came out, and a lot of bad men stayed in. Isn't it interesting that Luke makes no explicit moral judgment on the rights and wrongs of Paul and Barnabas' separation? Good and godly men can and do differ. A third observation. 
At the heart of those men like John Calvin who have practiced principal pragmatism has been a high view of the church. Evangelicals, and tragically, and this is my own personal opinion, and tragically many professing Reformed Christians have a low view of the church. They operate on an invisible, visible understanding of the church, effectively making very little of the visible and much of the invisible. You see this in the peripheral place, the sacraments, church discipline and baptized church membership have in their understanding of the Christian life. The vital thing is individual conversions, not the building up of the body of Christ to mature manhood. Where a covenantal understanding of the Christian faith is ignored or at best paid lip service to, church unity is never a high and precious priority. To many evangelicals today, and I wonder perhaps if to many Reformed Christians today, John Calvin's famous letter, which probably a number of you know off by heart, to Thomas Cranmer in 1553 would seem almost alien. Let's listen to Calvin's letter to Cranmer. This other thing also is to be ranked among the chief evils of our time, namely that the churches are so divided. That human fellowship is scarcely now in any repute among us, far less that Christian intercourse, which all make a profession of, but few sincerely practice. Thus it is that the members of the church being severed, the body lies bleeding. So much does this concern me, that could I be of any service, I would not grudge to cross even ten seas if need were on account of it. I would think many evangelicals listening to that wouldn't know what on earth Calvin was talking about. I was reading in John Owen, volume 13, uh, this past week a little bit. Um, He writes about indulgence and toleration considered. And he wrote, It seems that we are some of the first who ever anywhere in the world from the foundation of it thought of ruining and destroying persons of the same religion with ourselves merely upon the choice of some peculiar ways of worship in that religion. Lastly, Does this mean that all we can do is shrug our theological shoulders and say, c'est la vie? No, absolutely not. Truth matters, and truth matters absolutely. But there are times when the right option in standing for truth and righteousness is not as obvious as some Christians think it is. If it were, every Christian would be like me, a reformed de Uri Divino Presbyterian. <laughs> For me at least, and this is a very, uh, very idiosyncratic, and I almost apologize for that. For, for me at least, the huge challenge we have in this whole issue is to respect and even honor the brothers with whom we differ and not simply dismiss them out of hand as pragmatic compromisers. Now, some have drifted in that direction. We know that. I don't want in any way to minimise the importance of this issue. 
But differences there inevitably will be among good and godly men regarding how best to respond to error in the life of the church. We are surely summoned by our Lord always, always to think the best, not the worst. Not instinctively to impugn a brother's motives. And to balance our own convictions with the peace and unity that gives luster to the church's gospel witness in the world. Confessing the truth is relatively easy. Practicing the truth is something else, isn't it? We're not only to confess the truth, we're to practice it. But we're to do so in a spirit that seeks always, not mindlessly, but graciously to think the best. We have to understand that the Westminster Confession of Faith is not the Christian faith. The Confession has a magnificent chapter 25 on the communion of the saints. It's just a stellar, one of the stellar chapters in the Westminster Confession. We need to cultivate that largeness of heart that recognises the, the breadth, sometimes the uncomfortable breadth, the unsettling breadth of the church. One of the reasons why I enjoy so much reading the Princetonians, Hodge and Warfield in particular, well, Warfield and Hodge in that order in particular, is in their writings to be confronted at the same time with high, unashamed, unadulterated, reformed theology. I just love that. When I studied at Edinburgh University, um, I'd be spending the day having to look at um, Redaktionis Geschichte and form criticism and then look at um, uh, documentary hypothesis. I'd go home and just bathe my soul a little bit in Warfield and Green and, and Hodge and whoever. You have this unashamed, unadulterated uh, reform theology, but at the same time, penetrating it, mingling its way through it, you have this catholicity of spirit that is actually deeply unsettling. Some of you will know Hodge's three volumes, and in volume two, he is he's dealing with... Um, I suppose, neo-Hegelianism. And he's reflecting on his time in Berlin in 1827-28, I think, when he, he met Schleiermacher. And in a very famous footnote, he, he tells of how visiting um, his professor Tolluck's house, he heard Schleiermacher singing hymns to Jesus, to Tolluck's children. And Hodge 
remarkably then writes, and who can but doubt that he who was so greatly wrong in his knowledge of God is singing those same hymns to Jesus in heaven's glory. When I first read that, I thought, are you serious? Are are you serious, Schleiermacher? Now, I'm not saying Hodge was right. I, I don't know if he's right. But when you read that, you think, hmm, this is interesting. This is a reformed tradition that is not very well known. We have, in these past decades, truncated the reformed tradition. We forget that it, it was multifaceted. Geneva wasn't Zurich, Zurich wasn't Basel, Basel wasn't Wittenberg, Wittenberg wasn't Canterbury, Canterbury wasn't Edinburgh. There was a, there was a breadth, but there was a, a, a depth, a profundity to the early magisterial reformers' teaching. When I sat the PCA licensure exams, 1992, um, one of the questions I was asked, and again, I had had to smile, they said, um, are you a five-point Calvinist? And I said, I find the question demeaning both to Calvin and myself. Um, I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, They said, well, would you like to explain yourself? I said, I'd be very happy to do that. I said, you know, say I said to you, yes. Well, I I am. What would that tell you about me? I'd been asked, do you believe in limited atonement? I thought, what a crass question to ask anyone in an ordination exam. I said, does that tell you I can preach the atonement? That I can open the grace of the gospel to a dying man? You know, ask me, ask me big questions. And you've never asked me about the Holy Trinity. And I would think that if we started where the Reformers started and where the early church... Do you ever wonder why the early church was so absorbed in their Christological controversy? Were they just cross-grained individuals that just couldn't get enough infighting? They gloried in God... And part of the reason, it seems to me in Scotland, why the church is so fractured and why evangelicalism is where it is, is because we don't glory in God. I speak to myself before I speak to anyone else. We don't glory in... When you glory in God, in the majesty and magnificence of the Holy Trinity, in the generosity of the God of grace, in the sheer extravagance of his becoming all things to all men that he might by all means save you think goodness me and I'm quibbling about this and that and the other brothers we need to get real